1: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome back to the Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. We're here for another conversation about school life and leadership. Uh, And I'm joined today by Dr. Pano Canellas. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Now, you've been the president of St. John's College in Annapolis uh, since 2017. Is that correct?
2: That's right. That's right. My, my third year now, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. wonderful. Um, so, what drew you to St. John's in particular? Um, did, did you grow up desperately wanting to be the president of a liberal arts college?
2: Uh, I would be terrified of any child who grew up desperately wanting to be the president of a college. So I don't think that was the case. I didn't even know what a president was then. Right. Uh, not, not quite sure I know what one is now either. But no, you know, I'll, I'll say my journey to St. John's, it did begin when I was a child. I was really a, a reader as a child. My background is that my, my family's from Greece Like many Greek families, we owned a restaurant and kind of coffee shop, diner sort of place. And uh, when I was growing up, neither of my parents are are, uh, are educated people. Neither had ever been to college. Um, So I was growing up, you know, I spent the afternoons after school in the restaurant and next to, you know, the guy peeling the potatoes in the back. And I would read books and a lot of the books that I read were gravitated towards many of the classics. I had a kind of natural inclination to read Homer and novels and poetry and that. And so when I went to college, I I attended a, um, I will not name the college because I might be maligning it in the process, but let's say it's a top 20 research university. Okay. And I was the first in my family to ever go to college, um, had no idea what to expect um, when I got there um, and what I found was very disappointing to me I thought that mm. college was going to be a place that people got together and had serious discussions about books and about art and about poetry and what I found was um, not quite that I found a, a university that was really uh, most concerned with pre-professional training and um, sort of moving students through the system as quickly as possible and it didn't seem like a place that had any kind of gravitas to it. Um, So after I graduated from there, I was still trying to find a community to read books with. And I went to graduate school thinking that's where that happens. And I was very fortunate there in that I found um, myself in a PhD program at university of Chicago, Mm -hmm. social thought, which is a place that takes the great books very seriously and, and creates opportunities for that kind of education. And I, read voraciously, and really sort of got swept into the culture that, you know, we now define as classical education, but wasn't sort of defined that way at the time. Mm -hmm. And then when I went on after my PhD to become a professor, well, there's, there aren't very many places one could teach broadly across the, the tradition. So I gravitated to English departments and theater. my dissertation was on Shakespeare and I was interested in theater. So I was my first teaching job was at University of San Diego where I also taught at an MFA program at the Old Globe Theater and sort of the resident Shakespearean there. And then I went out to Loyola University and taught there in an honors program that was great book centered, great, fantastic honors program, in addition to being in the theater department. And then I became the dean of a place called Christ College at Valparaiso University, which is a great books honors college. When I was at Valparaiso as a dean, I became involved with a project to start a classical charter school there. I have school age children. And so I was um, part of that movement and learned a lot about classical schools. And then I learned that this job at St. John's was, you know, they were looking for a president here in Annapolis. And um, St. John's for me had always been kind of a platonic ideal of liberal education. And I'd always admired St. John's, but from afar. And so I threw my hat in the ring, really not expecting that anybody would pick that hat up and, you know, <laughs> Providence intervened, and I was offered this opportunity, and it's just been an absolute delight to be here for the
1: past few years. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'm fascinated by what St. John's is doing. I have uh, friends who are graduates and are far more familiar with what you're doing there, and so I'd, I'd like for us to dive in a little bit and talk about what goes on in the classroom and the community there, but... Let's start with kind of the big picture. St. John's is committed to liberal education, right? In our day, though, that can be kind of a loaded term or confusing term. What is a, a liberal education? What are the hallmarks of liberal education?
2: You're right. It's a very confusing term. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, that seems like a term that might be politicized. And right. in other ways, it's, it's a term that overlaps with what we call liberal arts education, but isn't always exactly the same as liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, a liberal education is an education that takes as its aim the freedom of the one being educated. So liberal comes from the Latin root, meaning that we connect with liberty. Liberal education is oriented around a particular telos, a particular endpoint. And that end point is freedom. Now, of course, <laughs> that's, a, that's a difficult question, right? does right? it mean to be free or free to what or free from what? Right. Right. And so, you know, different people, different institutions define that themselves. But, you know, the way that, that we think about it here at St. John's is the education part of liberal education also coming from the Latin ex ducare, which means to lead out of. We put those two pieces together. So you're being led out of something and towards freedom.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What is it that you're being led out of? Ignorance. You're being led out of ignorance. And the process of leading one out of ignorance leads them towards having the capacity and knowledge to make the kind of choices and decisions that a free person would make or ought to make. And so, you know, there's a a system of education that has come to be called liberal arts education that shares the same end. And those who are listening, who are educators, especially classical educators and homeschool educators, will know quite a bit about what I'm going to share. And this is how we see things at St. John's as well. You know, a liberal arts education, the education of producing free individuals, is an education that is, first of all, comprehensive. So it's an education that seeks to explore all areas of human knowledge. So it's the opposite of an education that's specialized or narrow or siloed. And the form that this took historically, of course, was um, an education divided into two main categories, let's say groupings, the trivium and the quadrivium. And the trivium were the, the arts of language, grammar, rhetoric, logic, and the quadrivium were the arts of numbers, geometry, math, astronomy, or what we call physics now, and music. But underlying all of this was the belief that there are two ways of knowing the world that we live in, two ways of understanding it. There's a qualitative aspect to the world and a quantitative aspect to the world. And so the qualitative aspect is manifest primarily through the arts of language. How do we make judgments about the world? How do we exercise discernment? How do we understand what's better or worse? How do we deeply dive into uh, human questions? And the quantitative aspect of learning are are those things which can be measured, the the world around us, the uh, physical phenomena of the world. Um, And these two forms of knowledge work in concert. So we need to understand the world quantitatively. We need to understand the world as it is uh, in a measured way to be able to make qualitative judgments. And we need a qualitative capacity to understand what to do with all that quantitative knowledge. So bringing those two things together, I apologize for being long-winded, but I I just love this subject. Bringing those two things together is if you can balance those forms of education you create, circling back around to the beginning, a person who is free because that person is able to see the world as it is. And being able to see the world as it is, they're able to move through that world in a way that accords with the, the highest things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, one of the things that I think in this, as we at Circe often refer to it, the, the classical renewal, the classical education renewal, is experiencing is that, even though we've spent a lot of time trying to understand what classical education is or liberal education is, I think what's gradually coming along is understanding that the pedagogy has to match that, right? So liberal education, classical education requires the study of great books, but they need to be studied and taught in a particular way, right? There's there's a pedagogy that has to match that end, that purpose. So let's talk about the the pedagogy at um, St. John's because it is, uh, as you alluded to, quite unique even from your own college and university experience, right? Um, so let's let's talk about some of the pieces of that. Let's yeah. start with uh, the seminars. What are what are the seminars at St. John's, and what are their aim?
2: Our seminars are they're the kind of core classes that our students take that are discussion based. There are Socratic discussions, and I mean, I should say something about what that means, because we often throw that term around—you know, Socratic pedagogy, Socratic discussion. A seminar is a gathering of students with a tutor or tutors, and we call our professors—we call them tutors because we don't think it's the job of educators to profess what they know, but rather to be a tutor, or the word comes from guardian to guard the process of education, to lead, to guide, to shape conversation. And so the students sit around a table, and it's always a table, and it's always person-to-person, face-to-face. They bring their books. It's always There's always a book. We don't have any devices in our classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, they bring a book, and the seminar typically begins with the tutor asking what we call an opening question. And then a conversation ensues f- from there. Let me say a little bit about the books that we use, because I think Understanding Seminar has to be understood within the frame of our curriculum. Mm-hmm. Every student at St. John's follows the same four-year Great Books curriculum. And that curriculum ranges across all the subjects of the trivium and the quadrivium. I mean, we def- define them a little bit differently. But you know, they do courses in literature, philosophy, music, mathematics the sciences they study two years of greek and then two years of french Um, and this is this is done with a a kind of um, chronological march through the classics of of the western tradition so seminar is where we tend to read works of, of philosophy of literature history theology and have discussions around those texts. Mm-hmm. We also study in tutorials, which we can talk about later. Um, that's where we tend to focus on the study of mathematics and, and mm-hmm. science and language. So our seminars are a discussion around a table. We have two rules in seminar. They're very simple. The first rule is that all opinions must be heard. And the second is that all opinions must be defended with evidence.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So the tutor initiates a discussion. and you know, they ask a provocative question to start off. So, for example, if we're reading Machiavelli's The Prince, the tutor may begin by asking something like, you know, in The Prince, we we see that Machiavelli makes a claim that the ends justify the means. Is that true? Hmm. Uh, Is he right? And then a discussion will ensue. The best seminars, actually, are the ones in which the tutors or the faculty speak the least, In most of our seminars, the students carry on conversation themselves, um, moving from point to point for the two hours of the seminar. In fact, seminars often go well beyond the two hours. There's no, we don't pull the plug when time is up. We wait until the last question has been answered or asked. I should say, we don't always answer questions. That's different. One of the nice things about our seminars is that we hold them every Monday night and Thursday night. For two hours from 8 to 10 p.m so that our entire campus um, in the evenings is gathering around tables all at the same time and all the freshmen are reading the same text and all the sophomores are reading the same text and all the juniors and the seniors and are you know we have this beautiful leafy kind of um, historic campus here in Annapolis and you know I live right across the street and on seminar night I'll look there and you just see the campus aglow every light in the classrooms on mm-hmm. and it's like an event that we gather together and have this experience. And it's still the custom. Many of the students will come dressed up for seminar twice a week, the guys will wear ties and that. Not everybody, but many of them do. And it's a community that's getting together and diving into the deepest things, deepest human questions. Hmm. And ultimately, that's what we are most concerned with, it's our questions. We begin with an opening question, we ask questions along the way. We're less concerned with the having final answers Questions provoke discussion. And this goes back to the idea of what Socratic pedagogy is. Mm -hmm. Socrates was the convener of conversations. He was somebody who asked questions. Socrates was not somebody who provided answers. Education is about confronting questions and trying to find one ways forward. And education is not about tying everything up with a bow and moving on to the next subject.
0: Mm.
2: So a critical component of Socratic education is understanding that uh questions generate conversation they don't necessarily generate dis- you know decisive answers
1: right right um and and this is another uh you mentioned the tutorials earlier i think there's an the understood emphasis by most classical educators that that books are at the center right the great books are at the center and but uh, sometimes the math and sciences are lost in the shuffle, at least. It seems that, um, at least for some K-12 through 12 schools or homeschools, that uh, the place of math and science is a bit more of a puzzle. So talk to us about the, the tutorials that you do at St. John's. That's in um, language and mathematics and music, correct? And then uh, the laboratories in the natural sciences. What role do those play?
2: Yeah. So in this, tutorials in our labs um, are also discussion-based classes. They also are a group of students and a a tutor convening around a table and asking questions, and asking questions of books. We use the great books even in the context of science and math. So, you know, for example, freshman year, the very first Class that our freshmen have in their mathematics tutorial is reading um, Ptolemy. And, and I'm sorry, Ptolemy is not first. They read Ptolemy. The first, the first thing they begin with is Euclid's uh, geometry. And Euclid begins his book on geometry with a question. And the question is, what is a point? And so we begin our mathematical education at St. John's reading Euclid and asking the question that Euclid asks, what is a point? And then thinking about um, the best possible answer we can come up with to that really philosophical question. I mean, what is a point? I mean, is it, is it something that exists? Is it an idea? Is, it, is there something material about it? Is it immaterial? Why does that matter? And so we dive into mathematics, we dive into science by reading um, the classic text in those fields. Um, and what we do is we really, in some ways trace the history of mathematics and the history of science, the history of ideas about these subjects. But along the way, we conduct experiments that are appropriate to the text that we're reading. Mm-hmm. We um, you know, we do geometric proofs, we do mathematical proofs, we do, we do the hardcore math that, the, that these uh, authors are engaging with. And we work our way up from the simplest point such that by the end of four years, our students are doing advanced mathematics, they're doing non-Euclidean geometry, they're doing advanced physics and the science, they're reading Einstein's papers and doing the math in his, his papers, on, in the special theory of relativity, they're doing the math on it. So we advance through a series of texts, to understand the subjects, so that we understand not simply how to do science and do math, but we understand the underlying concepts that animate these topics so for us understanding the philosophy of science the philosophy of mathematics is as important as figuring out how to do an equation and all of this again is done in a kind of conversational communal setting so I I mentioned Ptolemy earlier because he was on my mind when I was visiting the college for the first time I sat in on a a math tutorial freshman and they were reading Ptolemy and Ptolemy was really concerned with the motion of the planets and the stars and the sun and the earth. And the chapter they had been reading had talked about how Ptolemy could determine on where he was in the Mediterranean uh, which day of the year would have um, which day of the year would have peak sun. And what the angle of the sun to the earth would be from where he stood on, on the globe. And he, he walked through that process. And so when I came in for that class that day, I sat on the side, and the students were all around the table, and tutor came in. And the tutor began with an opening question, just like we do in another class. And he said, okay, we read how Ptolemy determined from where he was which day of the year would have peak sunshine and what the angle of the sun to the earth would be on that day. How would we take Ptolemy's text and answer that question for Annapolis, Maryland, today. So, if we were trying to determine the same things Ptolemy was determining, how do we do that? And so the students jumped up and they went up to the chalkboards. And, and we only have chalkboards. That's we don't have any other. Um, we don't have whiteboards. We don't have any other technology in the classroom. They grab chalk and they start working on it. And one student would make a suggestion, and somebody else would go up there and say, "No, no, no, you're wrong here," and rub it out. And we have these wonderful globes in the classroom that have the kind of constellations circling around them, and they would use those to try and determine things. And It was just this very active, engaged um, group problem-solving activity, and uh, the class worked on, on all the, the entire class time. I'm working on coming up with the answer and testing that answer. I mean, I was, I've sat in on many, many classes as an educator, and usually after about 10, 15 minutes, I'm watching, but my interest level drops. I was on the edge of my seat. I was trying to figure it out with them the entire time. And yeah. I thought, if this form of education can get me, a rather, you know, jaded, long-time educator, right. um, if they could put me on the edge of my seat and get me thinking about these questions, it works. It simply works.
0: Yeah,
2: And, and so that's how, you know, we approach all of our subjects in a kind of experiential discussion-based way. For example, when the students are studying biology, you know that the tutor will have them come in and we'll be dissecting, let's say, a frog. And he'll say, cut it open. He doesn't give any instruction about, you know, what we're looking for. You know, there's no science textbook next to it telling you what the parts of the frog are. He doesn't even get into the sort of technical details. Cut it open. And as you're looking there, try to imagine... How the frog has been designed and what it is designed to do and how its skeleton, its musculature, Mm -hmm. how how those are composed to achieve certain things. So open it up and ask why the frog is a frog. And and so it just becomes another discussion. You know, it's not memorizing, uh, you know, the characteristics and tables that you might find in a scientific textbook. It's asking a question and through observation, being natural observers of of the natural world right
1: now the, what you're describing is not the typical college experience for for most students um, that's that's quite an understatement on my part, I think, but uh, not many students are receiving this kind of of college education, so it makes me curious then about the the culture of of st John's um, so far, what we've talked about is in the classroom. And the purpose of that conversation is so our listeners, whether you're a headmaster or a classical school teacher, or homeschool parent, you can implement some of these things and see the kind of pedagogy that's being used and learn from that. But let's talk about the school culture. What is life like at St. John's College? Tell us about the, the school culture being cultivated
2: there. It's a very exciting community to be a part of um, because at its heart, This is a community of of learning. Our students, because they all follow the same course of study, have a common intellectual experience. Mm -hmm. So every student on our campus is reading the same books in the same sequence, which means they all have things to talk about all the time that create a sense of engagement with one another that that kind of spills out of the classroom so you go to the coffee shop here or you go outside and students are sitting on the lawn and they're still wrestling with those ideas that they all that they were sharing in class and i mean i remember you know the first week i was here i was walking across and it was a beautiful day and there's a group of students sitting under a tree and they sort of waved at me and one of them waved me kind of over they're like oh you know i thought they were just going to ask you know Say hello to me. Ask me something trivial. And they're like, "President Canellas, come over here." And I, so I walked over there, and they just looked at me, and without missing a beat, they said, "What do you think was Antigone right or not?" <laughs> like, and you know, and and the assumption being, of course, that I had an opinion on that because they all have opinions on that because right. they're all engaged in those questions. Hmm. And I did have an opinion, by the way. And I, and, <laughs> uh, and I sat down, and we had a wonderful conversation. Um, but this is, you know, this is a, it's a real intellectual community and it it's not just the students. I mean, the faculty, one of the striking features about St. John's is that the faculty, no matter what their background is, what their academic background is, they have to teach across the entire curriculum. So, I mean, you can come in with a PhD in biology or a PhD in theology and you have to teach, physics and you have to teach ancient Greek and you have to scan French poetry and, you know, you have to do the whole thing. I mean, obviously this happens over time, but our faculty are living through the very curriculum that our students are learning through. And so that shared experience really bonds them. It becomes, it's a, I teach as well as, as, as often as I can. And it's, it's a kind of thrilling, it's thrilling to be in a classroom where your intellectual journey is what you're bringing to the table. Hmm. You may be teaching something you've never really taught before. You may be a step ahead of the students. They may be ahead of you. Um, your job is simply to make the conversation work. It's not to be the expert. So that kind of community is, it, it's interesting. And it, and it kind of, that underpins everything that we do. So for example, we have a custom here of Friday night lectures. Every Friday night, we have a, a really, you know rather serious um intellectually challenging lecture on, I mean, practically every subject we cover, everything we've had lectures talking about, you know, geopolitics to the, to the Odyssey, to microbes recently, and um, the entire community, the students and the faculty gather Friday nights for lectures in in our our lecture hall. The custom is that uh, when the speaker enters from the back of the hall, the entire lecture hall stands up in respect speaker makes his way to the podium, everybody sits down, they speak for an hour straight, and then at the end of the lecture, we take a five-minute break, and then we reconvene in what's called the conversation room, and then the students and the faculty get to ask the lecturer questions, and, you know, this is not 10 or 15 minutes of questions following a lecture. The lectures start, um, they start at eight o'clock on on Friday night, go till nine, and then question period begins after that. There are times when we're there till midnight, and the conversation mm-hmm. keeps going on, and it goes on and on. Um, so, you know, it speaks to kind of the ethos of the place, that everything is interesting and everything's worth talking about seriously. We do have some fun, but we have kind of saint John John's-style fun. So in Annapolis, we have traditions such as uh, practically weekly waltz parties where the students get together and they waltz and they'll do swing dance. We play croquet. We We have a very active uh, intramural sports programs. So we have, you know, they'll be out there playing basketball or fencing, or we're right on the water here. So we have crew and sailing. We also, I haven't yet mentioned, I should mention another distinctive thing about St. John's is we have two campuses, one in Annapolis, Maryland, the other in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And the one in Santa Fe has the exact same curriculum, same structure, but, but it's a very different setting. Right. And so in Santa Fe, um, you know, the social life inclines towards things that you might expect in the foothills of Santa Fe. There's a lot of students who go hiking and camping and a lot of outdoor activities and no and that, sailing. No <laughs> sailing. Uh, no. And so, you know, but, so we have kind of two different um, let's say atmospheres in which you mm-hmm. can have this kind of education and students can go back and forth every year. They can do one year in one campus, one year in the other tutors also go back and forth. Okay. So it's very, it's, it's, it's a, it's a place that's very serious, but, but again, because of the, th- the thick community, the students do enjoy themselves as well. I would say one other thing about the, the kind of culture here that we cultivate, we're very purposeful about maintaining a community that keeps modern technology and social media at bay. I mean, students can have laptops and they can have cell phones, but they're not allowed to bring them to classrooms. They don't. They rarely use them in public because of the kind of culture we've created. So you'll walk across our campus and see three, four dozen students, and you won't see anybody on a device. They'll be talking and or reading books because we really believe that you know that college should be college unplugged, and so we sort of think of ourselves as kind of college unplugged here, and that makes a. a massive difference in the social character of the college. One of the things when I was a professor at other institutions, I was often asked, you know, how have, how have students changed over the years? And, and uh, one time I answered somebody, I had this sort of epiphany. I said, you know, the thing that has seemed most evident to me is that when I first started teaching, I would walk into a classroom and it would take me a couple minutes to quiet everybody down. So we can get started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I walk into a classroom and it's deadly silent Right. Because the students, even though they're sitting side by side, are all looking at a device, dis- disconnected from one another, connected to something else. Yeah. They're not as present. And so at St. John's, that's just we just simply don't allow that. I mean, we have a culture here of um, person-to-person communication.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because I know that this is a struggle for. Uh, for schools everywhere, um, and I, I imagine any headmaster or teacher, or homeschooling parent listening uh, would love to capture that spirit of, of inquiry and curiosity um, that, that you're describing. So, are there any intentional steps? I know you mentioned about the, the rules about technology, but are there other intentional steps that you'd offer uh, for for those trying to cultivate that same kind of community and, and um, spirit of inquiry in their schools.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think absolutely. I think the, um, you know, we can't underestimate the, the importance of what I framed earlier as a kind of common intellectual experience. So that, you know, that even at the youngest ages, students who, let's say at the, at the, in, at the primary grades were learning how to recite poetry, having a canon around which they work and knowing that that canon is something that they share as a community, but which is as a canon that's been shared by generation after generation, instills in, in students and in the educators a sense of commitment to not simply the material, but to one another as a community who live within that canon. So, and, and I, you know, I know that most classical schools already have cultivated this kind of um you know this kind of environment, and 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 homeschool families um, often work within a, a, a canonical tradition, but I think that's I think that's really important. But also, you know, beyond just having that set of texts to work from, I think it's trying to situate the importance of that outside the classroom. The the most effective things that I've seen happen uh, at the K through twelve level are schools where. Educators find a way to bring the whole family into the process, organizing lectures or seminars or that for the parents who to get together and, and learn the sorts of things their their own students are learning I think that that's, that's absolutely critical. The idea is that that we have to free education from the confines of the classroom and make education a habit of life itself, and so the more that we un tether these texts from the formal settings of the classroom, the more ways we find to do that, the more likely the students who are in our charge are going to think of books not as instructional material, but as companions. Mm. And that sense of companionship, I think, is is really critical. So I think it's, you know, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying it's about creating an entire, an ethos, an intentional community that takes the important human questions as a kind of uh, asking those questions is simply a way of breathing, uh, a way of being and finding ways to do that.
1: Yeah. Now, as as we sort of wind down the the conversation, I want to ask just a couple of specific questions for parents and students who are in this season of preparing for for college, right? This is, can be one of the most stressful seasons of life, both for students and parents, right? Those last couple of years of, of high school and worrying about the transcript and you know uh, college applications and scholarships and all that—it's it's really hectic. So, given your role as, as a college president, what what advice would you offer to those who are in that season of preparation now? What what should they be preparing for?
2: I think the, the the most important thing to do is to remember what the purpose of education itself is, and and make decisions from that point. Um, education is meant to serve human flourishing. Education is not instrumental in a narrow sense. Um, it's not uh, this. I mean, we have this gift, this ability, with this privilege of of living in a, a society that that has. Practically universal education available um, to all its members. And we don't want to diminish that gift by thinking of education as simply job training. We're thinking of education as a a means to material ends. I mean, jobs are important, professions are important, material success can be important. I mean, I I don't, you know, those are fine. But those are um, side effects of a real education, not the purpose of education. So what I would say is when you're thinking about making choices around colleges and universities, you want to seek out an institution that focuses on the whole person Mm. and dive deep because every website, I I once did this exercise, I was speaking to a a group of um, fellows in Washington, D.C. These were college students who were interning at a think tank there. And we're talking about education. I did this exercise where I, had pulled 20 mission statements from 20 different colleges and universities of all different sorts, everything from a local community college to Harvard to large state schools. Mm -hmm. And I put all 20 of the mission statements up on a a screen and we read through them. But I I hid which institution each one was associated with. I said, so tell me, you know, and then I put a list of the schools on the side. tell, Tell me which school has which mission statement. And they couldn't tell the difference between what Harvard had to say about itself or what Community College X had to say about itself. Mm-hmm. The way schools present themselves is gobbledygook. It's, you know, this sort of um, generic language that they use that's kind of market driven and market tested. And so listening to what schools say about themselves, they may say we educate the whole person or we're concerned in this net. Um, don't don't take everything at face values. Go to schools, visit them and talk to the students who are there, who have been there and talk to the faculty and listen to what they say about what it means to be educated there or be an educator there
0: mm-hmm.
2: and see if that accords with an education that educates the whole person. I always say that the purpose of college is not the transfer of information, but transformation. So you want to look for schools that um, have as, as their mission – the transformation of, of of human beings, that 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 the purpose of education is to to take these individual souls and to feed those souls in a way that leads towards growth and development and and um, self knowledge. If a college is talking about its job placement rates and it's it's trumpeting this and trumpeting that, and it doesn't have anything else to say. I would question. Uh, I would question the values of that institution, yeah. and you know, I would just say that you know. There, so remember that the habits that young people develop at the home, so in preparing for college, are the habits of life. So if you want your daughter, your son, your niece, your nephew, whoever it is that you're thinking about for college, if you want them to have a, a transformative experience in college, you have to teach them the value of transformative education before they even get there. They will, they will seek out what it is that you acculturate them to seek out when they get there. So so it's not the responsibility simply of colleges and universities to complete this education, but for us to prepare young people to be educated.
1: Mm-hmm. Related to all this, one, one objection that a lot of parents have is, is that classical education or liberal education can end up being impractical. In my own experience, working with high school students, there are parents who can be tempted to shift, you know, when when their son or daughter's five, six years old, education is about, you know, nourishing the soul, the cultivation of wisdom and virtue and all that. But now when it comes time for college, right, and their priorities seem to change and suddenly, you know, the concern yeah. is over, as you mentioned, job placement and Having a marketable degree and all of that, so when a student comes to St. John's, though they're they're not choosing from a 120 different majors or even five, right? <laughs> right. Um, so how do you respond to that concern that a lot of parents do have that a liberal education is going to make it difficult for their career or their yeah. future?
2: Well, my my first response, which is admittedly rather rather glib, is I. Um, <laughs> Say liberal education worked pretty well for Thomas Jefferson, um, and others who were essentially educated in the exa- this exact same way. But um, you know, I do understand uh, that parents are justifiably thinking about what happens after college, what the outcomes will be, what a college education will lead their daughter or son toward. I do understand that, um, and you know, the evidence that that a real liberal arts education can produce success in, in the professions. I mean, it's readily evident. And I mean, I would say our own college here, um, You know, here we have students who have all followed the same course of study, read the same 200 books, have uh, the same degree of Bachelor of Arts in liberal arts, and yet our grads go on and are successful in every field you can imagine. I mean, we've had grads who are the CEO of Bear Stearns. We have a grad who's a US senator, one who's an ambassador to uh, West African nation. Uh, the editor chief of the Huffington Post is one of our graduates. The the, the inventor of the app are two of our graduates. A married couple invented the app, the, the concept of the app on smartphones. The guy who invented MacGyver, if that means anything oh. to you, was it was, was one of our graduates. <laughs> they go on to become neurosurgeons. They go on to become you know college professors, artists, lawyers, doctors. So the, it's it's inconceivable to me that this education limits anybody if, yeah. the, if the outcomes are so varied and so successful. And I think the reason that they are is um, because this education is actually more in tune with what young people need today than conventional education or what's become conventional education. The National um, Education Association, the NEA, did a study about the success in, in the 21st century for young people, and they're trying to identify what what educators needed to think of when thinking about preparing students for their future. They came out with a 200 page report after years and they kind of distilled it down to um, what they called the four C's. And the four C's are critical thinking, collaboration, communication, and creativity. So they, they, it doesn't matter what major you have or what you know, what course of study you have. These meta skills are the skills that will prepare a young person for the future. And, you know, here I am at St. John's College thinking that is that is what we assess. That's the product of our education, mm-hmm. communication, collaboration, critical thinking and creativity. That's what we do. That's our brand. Um, it's a be crass about it. Um, and, you know, there are other indicators that the, the age of the college major is over. The idea that you go to college and you, you focus on something narrow, and this prepares you somehow for that fluid, dynamic world that we live in. I mean, if you think about it, and I was a college professor at other institutions, what do you get when you're a college major? Let's say you pick a subject, economics. You're taught by people who got their PhD 20, 25 years earlier, who um, have spent their life not being bankers and not being you know, financial analysts who are really brilliant and and have ideas about things, but who live outside the mainstream of the professional world. And that professional world is constantly evolving in in ever more rapid ways. And what universities and colleges are doing is they keep trying to create new programs to match the professional demands out there. But by the time it takes you two to three years to create a program, the job, you know, the, the, the scenario that you're trying to match with has already changed. Yeah. And so the idea, you know, because of the fluidity of of modern professional life, the idea that you get some kind of job training that prepares you for what's to come, it doesn't really match up anymore. And that's why most companies are not looking for particular majors. They're looking for um, students who have evidence of those four C's. Hmm. I met a fellow who was a uh, Who's local here and who knows St. John's but did not attend there? And we met at a, a, an event one night, and he said, "Look, you're you're the new president of St. John's College." And I said, "Yes." And people say that I always like, okay, what do we do now? You know, that I need to talk to you. I said, and he said, "Listen, uh, I own one of the country's largest cryptography companies because I want you to meet every single St. John's graduate you can. I'll give them internships in the summer." And if they get if they get security clearance when they graduate, uh, the day after they graduate, I'll start them at six feet. I'm like cryptography. I go, you know, we're, we know we're reading Plato and, and Shakespeare and uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, what does this have to do? And he said, look, those students are the students for what we do. They know how to analyze. They have a facility of language. They've done very well in mathematics they have this kind of nimbleness of mind. He goes, that's exactly what we need in, in our field. He says, just send them. And what I realized what he was describing was that education, liberal arts model that we started with, right? right that that right. comprehensive education where the mind is firing on all cylinders and you understand all subjects and how they interlink rather than being narrow. So, you know, I, watching... Generation Johnny's got into the world and be successful. I mean, I, I have every bit of confidence that litigation is an education for success in our world today.
1: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Uh, it's been very very helpful. I, I think for for headmasters, for teachers, homeschooling parents, um, valuable valuable stuff about both uh, what goes on in the classroom and school culture, and then particularly for those preparing for. For college, um, it's a wonderful reminder about what's really important. So, uh, Dr. Kanellis, thank you again for for taking the time to join me today. Well,
2: it's it's, it's absolutely a pleasure. You know, one of the first things that we, did, we came on board a couple of years ago was begin a classical and homeschool outreach initiative. Saw um, a chance myself to visit many classical schools, interact with many homes groups and organizations such as Circe and others that, that serve communities. And, you know, I'm, I'm delighted because I think we are, we're all, we're all playing for the same team and we all really believe in, in, in the value of the, of, of the same things. So the wonder of the tradition, the books that we read, the necessity of thinking about large ideas like, and beauty and goodness and that. And so, I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to, to speak with you and to reach out to those of you out there who are involved with classical education. So thank you very much.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you to all of you who are listening today for now. And until next time, I'm your host, Brian Phillips on the Commons. We'll talk to you again very soon.